This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs, in which we talk to an expert about an important issue and we get into a little bit more depth than we can uh, in the back and forth of conversations in a regular podcast. Today's guest um, on Briefs and Debriefs is one of our friends uh, and one of the smartest people we know on WMD, Nuke Issues, uh, Joe Serencioni of the Plowshares Fund. And Joe, we wanted to talk to you because there's been a bunch of news this week out of the Koreas. Uh, there was a, a trip by the president of South Korea to North Korea, um, very friendly seeming meetings, uh, and a number of things agreed to there, uh, including a, something that looks like a process to move towards a, a, a more peaceful Korean peninsula, and some agreements um, on some aspects of maybe I wouldn't quite call it denuclearization, but uh, at least pulling back from some aspects of the nuclear program. But there are quid pro quos and caveats and questions. And we thought the best thing to do would be to hear from you and get your take. Great. I'm happy to do that. You'd be excused for not understanding or appreciating what just happened in the Korean Peninsula, because Lord knows we have enough news in Washington to occupy us. And the stories about this summit have been confined to the inner pages of the of the newspapers. But something truly historic happened on the Korean Peninsula just in this last week, a three-day summit between the leaders of, of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, and the leader of South Korea, Moon Jae-in. This is the third uh, a summit that these two leaders have had. It's only the third time in history that the leader of, of South Korea has gone to North Korea. But it was completely different from all previous meetings. In, 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 in one important aspect, North Korea, for the first time, started treating the South Korean president like an equal. He was feted. He was lauded. He was brought to a stadium with 150,000 people, a North Koreans, and allowed to give a speech talking his his message there we have been, we have lived together on this land for 5000 years for 700 years we've been separated going forward we must live together as one people and this unification message is extremely powerful in both north and south and and it it, it dominated the feeling of these meetings so there's some the symbolism the the shift in relationships would have been important by itself, but they also accomplished two other things. Most importantly, they took serious steps to de-escalate the possibility of military conflict on the peninsula. They, they reached an agreement to establish no-fly zones on the border, the, the demilitarized zone. They agreed that both sides would halt artillery and other military drills within three miles of, of the border. They're closing down guard posts on the border. They're talking about demining. One of the last places in the world the U.S. has mines is on the DMZ, and they're talking about starting to take those, those mines out, and other confidence-building measures and, and tension reduction measures. Why is this important? For decades, both North and South Korea have, 
have stockpiled cans of gasoline on the border. And every couple of months they go throw matches at it. And every once in a, mo- a while, some of those matches hit a can and we have an artillery exchange. We have ships sunk. We have a U.S. soldier uh, uh, killed on the DMZ. And each one of those exchanges threatens to, to lead to a broader conventional war. And for the last five or 10 years, there's been the risk that that war could go nuclear. So by, by de-escalating, you're going right at one of the flashpoints on the peninsula and easing tensions and promising to do more. This was coupled with a whole host of agreements on cultural exchanges, including a pledge to try to bid to, to co-host the 2032 Olympics on the peninsula, economic exchanges, which by the way, if they go through, would undercut the, the sanctions that have been placed on North Korea. And, 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 and most importantly, they just kept the peace process moving forward. So what about the nuclear? Well, this is the thing we care about the most, and this is the lead story in most U.S. papers. But even there, there was some good news. This is not really technically in their jurisdiction. I mean, South Korea can't deliver on the nuclear uh, promises. This is something that the North Koreans and the U.S. have to negotiate. But even there, we got this this offer from Kim to uh, uh, bring inspectors in, international experts, to watch them dismantle a missile engine site. This is the site they use to test the engine for their intermediate range and long range missiles that can hit the United States. So it's it's a serious site to dismantle. And most importantly, the, the nuclear production site at uh, Yongbyon. This is where they make the plutonium. As far as we know, it's the only site where they make the plutonium for their bombs and where they also have a substantial uh, centrifuge facility for enriching uranium. Shutting that down would be a big deal. It doesn't end the program, but it is a major step towards reducing their capability and sort of rolling back and then freezing their their production capability. Kim didn't say he was going to do that. He said he'd be willing to do that in exchange for reciprocal steps by the United States. So now the ball is in Trump's court. What is he going to do? What would those reciprocal steps be? Most likely, it's what Kim wants, which is he wants a peace declaration. He wants an announcement ending the Korean War. That is actually something we can do. It's not that big a lift. It doesn't require us to do anything else but declare that the war uh, that that we sent, set a truce for back in 1953 is is actually over. So that. All that package that I've just outlined, that is a significant achievement that has got major implications for the possibility of war on the Korean Peninsula, which a year ago looked like it was really coming when the president of the United States went to the the podium at the UN and denounced Rocket Man and threatened fire and fury. The threat of war in the peninsula has receded. This is a good thing. It It kept the peace process moving forward. And the Koreans are clearly driving this agenda now, both north and south. And it opened some interesting doors that might lead to a resolution of the of the, the nuclear uh, crisis. But there's a long way to go, and a lot depends on whether President Trump can can get his team together to to respond in kind. Well, you know, you, one of the things that I, I I enjoy talking with you about this, Joe, is not only because you're super informed, um, 
but because you're the most optimistic weapons of mass destruction person I know. <laughs> right, so you're wondering if I'm whistling past the graveyard. <laughs> well, no, but I'm just, I, I mean, I, 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 what you're saying is, is quite positive. You've also seen some critiques, like, they're offering to dismantle things that they offered to dismantle before, that they're still building nuclear weapons and and that the substance of their 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 the, you know the threat that we were worried about before has continued unabated. Uh, that we don't know where the Trump administration is going to come out on this because people like Bolton uh, are are hardliners who are kind of opposed to people like Pompeo who are a little bit more, looking for the diplomatic solution, et cetera. So what do you say to them? Yes, there is a host of cynics on the left and the right that are throwing cold water over all this. And you can see it on Twitter, you can see it in the quotes and the articles about this, left and right. You know, a lot of ex-CIA agents who are now out uh, opining on North Korea, a lot of uh, left critics who hate Trump and say this is, this is gonna lead to disaster. And, and rightfully point out that Trump has oversold the deal and rightfully point out that Kim may be, be stringing us along, may be skillfully playing us. Yes, those are all true. And yet you have these concrete possibilities here. You have this deal that is t tantalizingly out there. The problem to me hasn't been that Moon has been too trusting, or that Kim has been too diabolically clever, is that the Trump administration has proved to be incredibly incompetent and divided over what to do with this. And so you have John Bolton, who's insisting that the way this has to happen is that North Korea has to completely disarm in a year before we do any steps, for example, declaring an end to the uh, the Korean War. You have Pompeo, who seems to want to deliver for his boss on this, and he modifies that and say, well, no, they don't have to disarm in, in, a, in a year, they have to disarm in two years, you know, and we want it all done by, <laughs> by coincidence, by January 2021, by the, in other words, in time for the, the, uh, the election cycle uh, in 2020. Uh, and what that does is it makes it impossible to proceed because there is no way that you or I, if we were in Kim's position, would disarm before the United States does, takes one step. The North Koreans point out all the time what happened to Libya, what happened in Iraq, how, how the U.S. has has abandoned the Iran deal that they negotiated just three years ago. They don't trust us and there's good reason not to trust us. So. The reason I'm optimistic is I think that Trump himself really wants this and might be able to overwhelm the hardline and general incompetence of his top officials. But mostly I'm encouraged by what the Koreans are doing. You know, we are so used to the U.S. dominating this process that it's taken us a while to realize that we're not dominating this, that Trump is actually the third and least important actor in, in this. And this might be one of the side benefits of Trump grossly decreasing the, the power and relevance of the United States in the world today. You see our allies and our adversaries not waiting for the incompetent administration to, to get its act together and decide what its policy is. They're moving ahead. 
And in this case, in the case of Korea, this is actually a good thing. It might not lead to the denuclearization of the peninsula. That's a proposition to be tested. But it is certainly it led, is leading to the decrease of the threat of, of a war that could kill millions of, of Koreans north and south. And that in itself is a good thing. I have to say, you know, you say uh, he's the third most important player in this, or the U.S. is the third most important player, probably the fourth most important player if you count the Chinese. Uh, and I think the oh, Chinese yeah. might might be perfectly happy to see a situation where you have a North Korea that maintains a nuclear capability, that has a major rapprochement with South Korea, where the risk of war goes down, um, and uh, where there may be some opening economically and socially, politically between the countries, um, uh, and the the north and the nuclear issue essentially gets pushed to the side, um, but it becomes the ace in the hole for the Pyongyang regime to say, no, we're not going to reunify. We're going to maintain our independence, but we do want to grow in a new context. That that seems to me like a scenario that we don't discuss in the U.S. But that the South, the North, and the Chinese might all be okay with. They, they very well might be. You're absolutely right. China plays a, a big role here. And part of Kim's game is to try to balance the Chinese. You know, he's he's clearly not a puppet of the Chinese. I mean, he's he's killed senior officials, including his uncle, who were China's guy in Pyongyang. He's actually killed them. Uh, so, well, I think this is one of the other things that makes me a little optimistic. He wants some kind of new strategic relationship with the United States in order to balance China, the historically the country that has dominated the Korean peninsula. And he might be willing to freeze and roll back his nuclear program in order to get that strategic relationship. So lead us to a situation like you described. Was he willing to give it up? You know, if I were him, <laughs> no, I wouldn't be willing to give it up. But that's a question that you can, as long as you've contained the program, you can string that out. You can set up a process where you can decide that eventuality in five years, you know, or, or even or in 10 years, as you build up the, the, the ties, build up the relationship that will allow Kim to give up its, its weapons, knowing that we weren't going to then kill him. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to. You know, this is supposed to be a brief conversation. I don't want to keep dragging it out. But it does strike me that one thing here is that Kim has realized that for Trump, the issue isn't actually denuclearization. For Trump, right. the issue is don't keep running tests that embarrass me. And so if they stop with the testing and quietly continue with their program and make noises like they're being more peaceful— Trump, who has zero strategic bones in his body, is probably going to say, OK, so long as you don't make me look bad. Well, I think that's right. So that's why the game for those of us who actually care about the nuclear program is to try to press that to include not just a testing freeze on nuclear weapons, a testing halt on long range missiles, but a production freeze. Let's stop. Let's freeze the program where it is. See if we can get the kind of reductions that Kim is offering dismantling a production site and transparency to open it up so we know more about it. So that 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 is in the offing. Those are the kinds of things that actually are possible, even if the complete denuclearization of the peninsula is not. And we won't know if it is for a good five to 10 years. 
Thank you very much. That, as advertised, is the most optimistic and positive outlook on the Koreas we've had in a while. And it may, as Henry Kissinger used to say, have the added benefit of being the truth. Um, uh, Thank you, Joe, for joining us. Hope to have you back on the pod sometime soon. And uh, uh, everybody out there, if you like this, if you like these briefs and debriefs, I do want to encourage you, go to deepstateradionetwork.com, sign up, become a member, support the growth of Deep State Radio, uh, support doing more things like this, have access to greater and greater range of of, of uh, Deep State Radio uh, um, podcasts, briefs, rants, uh, newsletters, and other kinds of, of materials, all designed to help provide the kind of inside perspective uh, we just got from Joe. Thank you, Joe. My pleasure. It's always great to listen to you and especially to have the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you, David. Thanks. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.